All right, Romans part 33. We finally made it to 12. And now we get to learn about, now that you know these things, do these things, basically, right? And, and just reminding you that while there isn't a Mosaic law, there is a law of Christ. And so we're going to kind of go through what the law of Christ is. And it's not, not necessarily, not, not at all actually having to do with your justification, meaning that if you do or do not keep the law of Christ, you're still saved. It's really rather doing with the re your reasonable service of responding responsibly, like pastor is praying, that we are responsible for n having right doctrine. Now we should have right conduct. James says, faith without deeds is dead, right? So don't have a dead faith, have a live faith. And so Paul says, in verse 1 of chapter 12, what? Remember, like, what are we to do now? Because of God's mercies, what should we do? As a living sacrifice, right? So it's a deliberate, voluntary, once and for all action like, Lord, thank you. I'm grateful. I don't deserve any of these things. All the mercies you've given me, you justify me, you sanctify me, you will glorify me. You love me that nothing can take that away from me. All I can do in response is present to you myself, right? And so that's, that's basically what his beginning statement is. Therefore, right, therefore do this. Therefore of God's blessings and mercies and the fact that we can trust God's faithfulness, God's loyalty, that he will stick to his will, his plan with, with and he used it, uh, Paul used Israel as an example of God's faithfulness, right? They would ask the question, be, what about Israel? Well, he says, yeah, let's talk about Israel. God is faithful. So just like I've been telling you that all these mercies and blessings and gifts and grace and mercy that you receive from God, they also received it. He's not finished with them. Even though they rejected him, he's not finished with them, right? And he always worked through the, the remnants. And so Romans 6.13 um, Paul wrote about the body as an instrument of righteousness, right? And, um, <clears throat> I'll read 6.13, then we'll get back to 12. So it says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instrument for righteousness. So now that you are aware that you are no longer dead to sin, but alive in Christ... Present your body, dedicate your body, consecrate your body to him, right? Be a member, have your member, your body be an instrument of righteousness rather than unrighteousness. You were un, in unrighteousness. Now that you've been taken out of that, no longer in the, uh, the marketplace of sin, you are in the marketplace of grace with, with Christ. Act like it, right? Basically think like it. Do that. Why, why, why go back and eat out of the garbage can? Right? You can be in, in the presence of the Lord, right? Because our bodies were um, instruments of unrighteousness. Even though, and we've talked about this, even though we thought we were good, right? We generally think we are good people. Most, if not everybody I know, thinks they're a good person in some way or fashion, right? And then the question always is, well, who are you comparing it to? And of course, they're comparing it to other people or the news or you know history or whoever but that's not who God compares us to he compares us to him his own son right so since Jesus already made a reconciliation for us an offering for us we are to partake in that offering that reconciliation 
with him by giving us, giving him ourselves. Yeah? And like I sort of briefly touched last week, it's just vastly different than presenting, uh, like in the Mosaic law, presenting sacrifices and offerings, right? Because when they offered sacrifices, the animal was killed, right? Paul is saying, present your body a living sacrifice, right? Meaning that it's a working, operating, maneuvering, active verb that you're, you're doing things, not just you're nothing, you know, and you die, right? I mean, our old, our old nature dies, that's our, a part of us, and we talked about that too, that we have this two parts within us, right? Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me because I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. What is it? I find this law to be here. God is at hand and evil is right there with me, right? And so we have this dichotomy, this sort of bipolar idea within us that we've got to overcome. But overcoming isn't, doesn't mean that you're, you know, meditating into nothingness, right? You're actually meditating into, you're, you're transforming your body into him, to be like him, not just a drop in the ocean of nothingness, right? You're actually not just like the atheist or the Buddhist might say that you are just going into nothing, nothingness and that's how you find peace. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem to be peace. That seems to be just death, right? There's nothing there. So... Um, again, this is not this is not the mosaic sacrificial system, um, but this living sacrifice that you offer is acceptable to God. The meaning of acceptable is eurestos, and that means well pleasing. God is well pleased with your sacrifice because it's voluntary, right? And so you're volunteering yourself as an offering. He accepts it, and it's well pleasing to him that you do that. Um, if someone read twelve two, Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's good, acceptable, and perfect, right? So we should recognize what God has done for us, like I've been saying, our spiritual lives, that we've been transformed, or that we've been renewed, then that, that the Holy Spirit has come into us and has put to death the slave or the bond that we had to slay, to sin, that has been broken. The decision to present your body a living and holy sacrifice is the, excuse me, is the first step of discipleship. It's the first step of that sanctification process is presenting yourself as that, as that way, right? Christ said, come and follow me. Well, you're choosing to not just believe that he done those things, but following him. It's an activity. It's not just a thought process. It's an action. You do something about it. You put your faith into action, right? So 2A, we, we're, again, we're kind of, um, Paul is under, or underscoring this law of Christ concept do not be conformed to this world, right? So in verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, we see two parts. We see a do and a do not, right? So the first is a do not. Do not be conformed to this world. Um, so in our dedication, in our presentation of our bodies, we're not to conform to the worldly system, right? So the worldly system is under whose control at the moment? Satan's system, right? They would call that the cosmos, right? Um, Satan's is control in this worldly system. And so do not be conformed to that system, right? You're already conformed to it because you were born into it. 
So what Paul is saying is think that you've got to be not conformed to it, right? Or to have a different lifestyle, a different outlook, a different think, thinking process than the world system, right? We're not to con conform to the mind programming that is occurring, and it occurs in multiple different ways, from TV, media, all kinds, our, our society, all kinds of social interactions. Satan is in control of those things. And remember, Satan's goal is to destroy you, but he does it very nicely. Right? He does it very deceptively. He's the angel of light, and his main goal is to just destroy you. God's purpose is to show love to you. Satan's purpose is to just destroy you. Right? He doesn't care about you. He cares about hurting or being vengeful to God. The way that he can be vengeful to God is not by overpowering him, but by deceiving those whom he loves, and he loves us. Right? Um, so everything, the way that you don't be conformed to this world is testing everything according to God's word, right? Anything that contradicts scripture, we need to reject it, right? So we have to know scripture. If you don't know scripture, how are you going to know what to reject, right? So the do not is do not be conformed to this world, but the do of our presentation is but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And like I was saying, transforming a good interpretation of that word or appropriate interpretation would be reprogram. Reprogram your mind, right? But be reprogrammed by the renewing of your mind, right? Because we are being controlled by the world we live in. We are being manipulated. We are being deceived by this current system. But we need, again, we need to, because of our faith, we put our trust and our hope in Christ that he is sanctifying us. Who, who's the author and finisher of your faith? God. So he, that means he, he began your faith, right? Nobody comes to God unless God draws him to them, right? So he begins your faith, and he finishes your faith. It's not up to you. All your job is to do is to basically present your body and get out of the way of your flesh, right? Get out of the way of what your, your world system is trying to get you to do. So we need to renew our minds. We need to expose ourselves to God's truth, allow the reprogramming of our mind to take place, the, the cleansing, right? If we cleanse ourselves, if, we're, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, for, to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our sins, right? We need to renew our minds, have the idea of being reprogrammed, right? Because we are programmed, we need to be reprogrammed into God's word. Um, if someone would read Titus 3, 5, We'll see that, we'll see more of that. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right, so the renewing of the mind, who does the renewing of the mind? The Holy Spirit. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all working within you to transform you, reprogram you, right? Renew you, regenerate you, get you out of death into life, right? It's not, it's not just, like I said, mindless activity or brainless meditation. It's an actual active uh, activity that you do, putting your faith into action. So we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Remember the, the, 
you know, the, the mind is, if you look at, what, say, like a common vernacular would be a computer, right? We think of hardware, which is the hard drive and the monitor and the box and all these things. Well, the software tells the hardware sort of what to do, how to do it. It's the same sort of idea within, within us. Our mind is telling our brain, the brain is the physical material part of it. Our mind is the software or the thought processes. Um, that tell us what to do. It's, it's telling us the difference between good and evil, right or wrong, true or false. Um, but the mind, our mind, is reprobate, right? Our mind was darkened by the fall. It's lost its ability to perceive the difference mostly. We have a conscience and we have God's law written on our hearts, on our hearts, not our minds though, right? So there's there's this sort of disconnect that we have to reconnect, we have to re-plug in, reprogram into God's law written on our hearts. We're, we're created with this, this desire to worship God, to worship something. We oftentimes fill that something with something else other than God, but nonetheless, we have a desire to fill that uh, creation or that design in us to worship God. Um, the, the regeneration process is restoring that ability to recognize good, bad, true, false, right, wrong, right? Perceive the difference. And so we need to reprogram our mind so that our actions will follow. Um, if you look at uh, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, talks about a similar thing. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Yes, please. And you took off your former way of life. The old man that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. Righteousness and holiness, right. So we see that, that our former manner of life, the way we thought, was corrupt through desires but those desires are deceitful, right? So the world system, Satan's cosmos, is deceiving you to think that those desires are fulfilling you, right? The world thinks that power, fame, fortune, whatever, all these things, or just being a good person, gives you the fulfillment or gives you righteousness or gives you anything. It's all deceit, right? Like I said, Satan's goal is to destroy you, but he doesn't do it by just openly coming out with a sword and try to fight you. He deceives you, right? He comes as an angel of light. He's the father of lies. And so he deceives you. So this world system is all about deceptions. So put off that old self. Put off that old manner of life, right? And rather, 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Being renewed is reprogrammed, right? and put on the new self. You have a new self to put on. Before, you didn't even have something to put on. You only had your old self. Now you have a new self, so put it on, right? It was created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So now all of your good works mean something. They all matter to God. You might have done good deeds before you were saved, what we would call good deeds, what we would call good deeds, but God looked at them as nothing, right? They were filthy. They were rags of unrighteousness. They meant nothing. Now that same deed of helping people and loving people is looked upon as good to God. So it, meant, it makes a big difference, right? Okay, now flip over to Colossians 3, 9 and 10. 
and we're going to see sort of another command um, of we would call the law of Christ because it's a do. We have remember laws are basically do and do not, right? So Colossians three nine and ten. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have cut off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge. Does anybody remember what Israel Israel had a zeal, but they didn't have what? Knowledge, right? So what was the knowledge? that they didn't have. They had a zeal for God, but they didn't have a knowledge. Remember what that knowledge was? Christ, their Messiah, right? They missed out on who, who God sent to provide for them. And they had a knowledge or a zeal for God, but they didn't have the plan of God in their minds. They had their plan of God was, we need to do all these works. So they had a zeal, right? They crucified the Messiah thinking that it was good. They thought this was doing good for God, and so they did these things that they thought were good, but they didn't have the knowledge. And so here he's saying, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We now have knowledge, do we not? We now, do you have zeal now that you have knowledge? They had zeal without knowledge. You might have knowledge, but do you have zeal, right? We need to have zeal for, and that's going to be one of the things we talk about, is having zeal, right? Okay, so we need, to look, we need to think like God in order to understand His will, right? How do we know the way God thinks? Mostly. Through His Word, right? I mean, that's a finite replication of, his, of Him for sure, but nonetheless, that's what we can grasp and what we can understand. He's revealed, to himself, he's revealed Himself in Scripture. So by knowing His Word is how we can think like Him and therefore behave like Him. So the best way to reprogram our mind would be what? To know his word, know it, understand it, memorize it, practice it, discuss it, go through it, let it go through you, right? I mean, all these things that we got to do. So, yes, can are you still saved if you believe in Christ doing those things? Yes, you're still justified because it is simply that, right? You believe in Christ and the work that he did. He died, buried, resur resurrected and on the third day. If you believe that, you're saved. But are you content with that? God has significantly more for your life than just being saved. Why would you just be saved? Right? Not, I don't mean to minimize that. It's a fantastic thing, but he has way more for you than just being saved. He wants to sanctify you. His will for your life is to sanctify you, right? Okay, back to um, Romans 12, verse 2. So 2C, right? So we see, do not be transformed, or do not be conformed to this world. Be ye transformed. To the renewing by the renewing of your mind. Why? Verse 2c, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, right? By reprogramming our mind, the renewing of our mind, it allows us to examine things, right? Um, giving us spiritual discernment. When you examine things, you can see, right, what's right, wrong, true, false, good, bad. Without that, you don't know. You're deceived, easily deceived, because someone's going to tell you, oh, this is very nice, right? It's very nice to do these things, but unless it's tested by the Word of God, unless you have spiritual discernment of it, you could easily be deceived. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, I've said this before, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is, For this is the will of God, 
right? If you want to know the will of God, it is to sanctify you. Your sanctification is God's will. Wherever you might be, whatever you might do, whether you are a missionary to North Korea or you are a laborer in Fort Myers, your will is sancti- God's will for your life is sanctification. And he uses wherever you are, whatever you do, to sanctify you. The trials, the tribulations, the struggles, the frustrations, all those things are exposing, bringing out your old self, and it's an opportunity for you to get rid of that old self, shed that old self, right? Again, so God has an incredible plan for your life beyond justification. So Paul is saying, now that you're justified, I urge you, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice because there's more. Wait, there's more, right? If you do this, you get buy one, get one free. You know, you, you get sanctification and glorification, right? Two for one or whatever. Um, so we need to consciously reject the world's programming, its world's ways, right? And undergo, undergo a reprogramming of our mind into the ways of God. So this is what Paul is now going to do, right? He's now going to say, okay, you got it? Now let's go. Let's start. Let's do. Let's do not. Let's do, right? So here we go. So the believer's conduct is, our conduct is founded on an attitude, and the attitude is humility. We must approach all things with a sense of humility, obviously, because what did you do to earn salvation? Nothing. What did you do to earn sanctification? Nothing. What will you do to earn glorification? Nothing. What did you do to earn or gain a spiritual gift? Nothing. He gave it to you, right? Everything is a gift to you, so there's no reason to be prideful or haughty, and and he'll talk about all these things. So verses 3 through 8 basically emphasize our attitude that we should have, right, of the believer. So someone read um, verse 3, if you would, 12.3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, so that word for, right, is connecting verses 1 and 2, right? We see that, that he's now connecting what he's about to say with presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. So when he says, I say, for by the grace given to me, I say, so remember Paul was directly taught by Christ. He was directly called by Christ and taught by Christ, not by any of the other disciples. Remember, he wasn't, or the other apostles, he wasn't there. He was persecuting them. But he talks about how Christ specifically called him out and specifically taught him. And so he says, as, a, as an apostle called by God, by, for the, by the grace given to me, the teaching, the understanding of the ways of God, I say to you, right? So he's saying, it's not my opinion. He's saying, I'm given that authority, apostolic authority, and here's what I'm telling you, okay? Um, <clears throat> so the believer, again, is not to think too highly of himself or more than he ought to think of himself, right? It's, it's in light of what's going to come next. What's going to come next is a discussion on spiritual gifts. And so, like I was saying, we each have a spiritual gift. Every single believer has at least one spiritual gift. Nobody has all of them, but everybody has at least one of them, right? So you have a spiritual gift. And I, I, I'll just interject my opinion. My opinion is it's not necessary for you to know exactly what that is. 
right? And we sort of talked about before. You're going to already be tendent, have a tendency to do things that you're more gifted in. And I, I'm of the opinion that if you try to figure out exactly what your spiritual gift is, you dismiss all the op other opportunities that you may not think are your gifts, right? So you might, might think, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, so I'm not going to do any teaching. Well, no. Teach where you can teach. Opportun you know that the opportunity is there. Teach. If you don't have the gift of service, don't say, oh, I don't do any service because I'm not gifted in that. You know, No, you do whatever comes your way. So I'm of the opinion, don't try to figure it out. Just do, right? And that there's going to be things that are going to be easier and, and more natural for you than you know, anything else. So, good with that? There used to be a thing where, where you know, um, survey, you know, what's your spiritual gift? You know, like mm -hmm. we did that. I years did one of years, those. Yeah. Years ago. Yeah. Um, but I think that was mainly for people that might be a new believer. I mean, by now, we all kind of know what our niche is. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a new believer, you kind of wonder where you fit in, what your gifts are, you know. And some people, I don't know, like what you said, they think that if that's not their spiritual gift, then they shouldn't do it. Yeah. And that's a, a really good point. And in light, of, in light of that, if you think it is your spiritual gift, you could become pretty prideful in that one thing. And so what he's saying is don't be prideful because it's a gift. Right? Don't, it's got no place for you, right? No place for your pride to be there. Rather, be humble that you, for one, even have a gift and you're able to participate in the, the growth and encouragement of the body. So it's, it's, it's just a good attitude, right? So Paul is talking about this is the attitude that you should have. First, be humble in all that you have because it was all a gift, right? Um, okay, so okay again. So we must recognize that gifts are a gift of God, right? That He's the one who distributes the gifts, and He's the one who gives the measure of faith within that gift as well, right? He's the author and finisher of your faith, and so when He gives you the gift, He actually gives you also the ability or the capacity or the the confidence to perform it in such a, ma a manner, right? We, we, it would be kind of silly for a brand new believer to go out and just do like massive things without the full knowledge or at least a working knowledge of the scriptures because it could really interfere with a lot of other things, right? So God gives a measure of faith according to the measure of the gift as well. So as you mature, as you grow, <clears throat> as you are more sanctified, your faith ought to grow, right? It ought to get more deeper into the knowledge of God, and therefore your gift will become more useful to the body of Christ, right? Okay, so we should think soberly, right, with sound judgment, right? Um, it means to recognize that, again, God is the one who gave it to you, right? He distributed it to all believers according to their measure of faith, so we need to think soundly about that, soberly about that, right? Um, and then verses 4 and 5, 12, 4 and 5, show why humility is such an important aspect or attribute that we need to have, right? And what he does is he uses uh, an illustration of the human body to show forth why your gift is not you, it's through you, right? To the body as a whole. So let's look, if someone read 4 and 5, 12, 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, all members have not the same office. 
So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one member, one of another. One of another, right. So just as the human body has many parts, right, so does the body of Christ, the body of believers, right? The many members are all believers. The, many, the members are all believers into one body, right? We've, we've all been united into one body, and that's being in Christ, that position. Jews and Gentiles are in Christ. It's a new position. Um, but just as each body part has a different function, so does each member of the church, right? Each believer has a different function in, in the church. Not all of us have the same gifts, not right? And like I said, no, nobody has all the gifts, right? Nobody is gifted in that way. Um, but so we need to have the whole body functioning, right? When, when your hand doesn't work, you notice it, right? You notice when it's not there. When a toenail is splintered, you notice it, right? So anything, the whole body, all we, we need to recognize that we have a spiritual gift and we need to give it to the body of believers because it affects the body of Christ if we're not there part, partaking of it, right? So we want to partake of that. That's his general idea, but we take partake of it with humility, right? So we see that they are, we're in one body, right? It emphasizes, like I said, positional truth. We're all in Christ. All believers form the body of Christ. We're also uh, individual members that belong to one another, right? So we all benefit from each other using their gifts to encourage and grow and to support that body's health. Right, and who does all that? Christ does all that. Right, He's the author and the finisher of our faith. All you're doing is reprogramming your mind, letting the Holy Spirit renew you, letting the Holy Spirit re re regenerate you into functioning the way that you were intended to function. Right. Um, okay, so now he's going to start listing off these spiritual gifts, um, but he he introduces uh, the pr a principle about the spiritual gifts. Um, read verse 6a, if you would. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Okay, so here's a principle that we have different gifts, but it's in accordance not with our talents or with our merit or with our intelligence or with our physical ability. It has to do with what? Only the God, only grace given to us, right? So he... God deliberately and freely chose who will receive each gift. So don't be upset if you didn't get that gift or you have this gift or whatever, right? It's kind of a silly thing, obviously, when you think about it. Um, and like I said, we don't, what if we all had the exact same gift? We'd be missing out on a lot of other things, right? So we have to understand that we each are given by God's grace, a gift that is to benefit the body. And again, the, the gift is through you, not to you, but through you, so that it would be given to the rest of us. Um, are we good? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so we see that this the body, this new position, the body of Christ, that you are in Christ, has unity, diversity, and harmony. Right? There's a unity of all believers, yet there's diversity because we don't have all the same gifts and we need each other, but yet there's harmony because you have a gift, I have a gift, it works together. Right? There's harmony within that. We are one. We should be thinking like one, we should be acting like one. Oftentimes we don't, but we should. Right? Um, okay, so 
of 6b now is going to start listing these spiritual gifts. So there's five main passages in the New Testament um, that deal with spiritual gifts. Um, I mentioned that every believer has at least one, and that comes from 1 Peter 4.10. And it says, um, according as each has received a gift, right there, ministering it among yourselves as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So right there, according as each has received a gift. So each person has at least one gift. Some have more, some have at least one, right? Nobody has them all, though. Um, so 1 Peter 4.10, Romans 12, 6 through 8 is what we're going through. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Within that body of text, there's a list of 19 spiritual gifts. Um, but again, spiritual gifts are a, a God-given ability that he's given you by grace. Um, and the primary purpose is the building up of the body, the building up of the body of Christ, right? So far, good. Any thoughts or questions or comments? I missed one of those Corinthians passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. And then 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Okay, so the first gift is in 6b. If somebody would read 6b. Right, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, right? So pro I'm going to kind of go through each gift that's listed here just so we have a general understanding of what it is. Um, prophecy is the gift uh, and the ability to receive truth by direct revelation from God, right? From the, through the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's given so that the, the, the truths of God, the purposes of God, the design of God can be communicated into to, to man, right? So we can understand the mysteries of God that he has. We look outside, we see that we know there's a God, but who is he? What is he like? Prophecy is the gift where God communicates who he is, how he thinks, what he does, so that we can have a way to understand it, right? So that's not necessarily prophecy and the way that we know what do you mean? What is the way like to prophecy like the prophesying future, you know, future events, knowing about future events? Well, I would I would say that that has ceased. That office of prophecy and apostleship has ceased. It had a purpose. Um, this word prophecy is a different word. No, this is prophecy. talking about that same prophet, a, a prophet, the gift of prophecy. A prophet has the gift of prophecy. Right. So that same office. Um, but I would, I would say there are gifts that have ceased because they serve their purpose, right? And I think we talk, like the scripture is not to be added to or taken away now. It's done. It's closed. However, in, in uh, the end times, there will be some mysteries revealed too by Elijah and, well, we would say Elijah and Moses as a two witnesses. But that's a kind of an exception to the rule of there's no longer a gift of prophecy because the scriptures are done, right? They're complete. And so we don't need to have new revelation from God because it would be very uh, contra most likely contradicting, right? If there's a prophet now that comes and says, I've received revelation from God, and if it's contrary to Scripture, then what do you do, right? So, but, that, but that's, that's a point 
that we have that we have to understand in the New Testament too that when somebody said I have the gift of prophecy how did the people know does anybody remember what they would have to do they have to go to the Bible and see if it goes along with what they would have to do a near prophecy like prophesy something close right something near and in, in time scale and if that thing came true then their trust could be for far prophecies Does that make sense so they had to authenticate their prophecy gift by doing a near prophecy um, and so there were several examples of prophets in the new testament um, Agabus, which is in Acts 11 and 21, the daughters of Philip, which is also Acts 21. Um, so, again, just as prophets of Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these guys, they had to have near prophecies come true. They have to be authenticated. They have to be you know, uh, validated by a near prophecy. So it was the same thing. Uh, my, the point of this conversation is not about um, the offices, what they are, and wh why it ceased, and all those things. But yes, to answer your question, yes, this is talking about the gift of prophecy. There is a gift of prophecy. It was given to people. In order to authenticate that gift, they'd have to do a near prophecy in order for the far prophecy to be believed. That makes sense? Yeah. When you first, when you first started, before I asked about future events like prophetic events before I said that and you were explaining prophecy it almost sounded like that pastors um, they're taking scripture and making it understandable to man oh I see what you mean that is a different gift yeah, but Taking, I think that's what yeah. I heard when you first mentioned prophecy. That okay. They're, they're taking... Um, new revelation. Okay, that's right. Good. So a prophet would have new revelation not already known, not like the mysteries of God being revealed. Right. A pastor teacher would be saying, this is what it is. Let me, let me serve it to you, right, as a waiter. And I will say that a pastor's job is not to be a chef, right, take some ingredients and then make a little dish, a pastor's job is to take the dish that was already made by the chef and deliver it to the people, right? He's the waiter that says, here it is, right? That's a side story, but okay. Um, so we're good with that prophecy, right? Um, so again, you exercise it according to the proportion of your faith, right? Uh, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith. So when Paul is writing this, there were still prophets going on. John is a prophet, right? The Apostle John. Peter was a prophet. Because they're talking about interpreting God's truths for now and what's going to happen in the future. So they talk about near things and far things. At this time that he's writing to the Romans, there are prophets. At our time, there are no prophets and there are no apostles, right? Because they serve their purpose. The, the, the church of God, the body of Christ, is built on the prophets and Christ being the chief cornerstone because Christ taught the apostles right, and prophets, right? Are we, are we good with, with that? Okay, so again, a prophet is not to go beyond their ability to receive truth from God. They're only supposed to uh, uh, exercise it according to the proportion of their faith. And John says that even. He says, I don't even know what this means, right? I was told, given all these visions and all these things, and I was told to seal it up. 
I don't know what these things mean, right? In, in a revelation. So that's according to his proportion. And I think it, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I think it even says, that's okay. You're not meant to know it right now, right? It will come. It'll come to pass. And so that's kind of what Paul is talking about, that according to their measure of their own faith, John wasn't, didn't need to know what all of that meant. All of the visions of those things meant, right? Okay, so let's go to verse 7. Read verse 7. In service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. All right. So ministry. Um, so the first, first is the gift of ministry or service. Someone who has this gift carries out biblical truth in a practical way, right? So, in fact, the term deacon means servant, right? Deacons are generally supposed to be servants of elders, right, who run the church. Our church is a smaller church, so we don't really delineate between elders, deacons, right? But in that time, a deacon was to serve in a practical way the elders who ran, the, like the church in Jerusalem, there was not like one main pastor, and then it went from there. There was a board or an el a group of elders who would lead the church that way. Um, James and John and Peter were an example of that. They served in the Jerusalem church. Paul went out to the, went out. Okay. Um, Again, so just as, uh, so generally speaking, a deacon elder would have a gift of serving, right? Um, just as with the gift of prophecy, the gift of service is to be used in the ministry to others. And again, it's dependent upon the faith given by God. Okay, verse 7b. In his teaching, right? So those who have that spiritual gift are able to organize biblical truth, present it in a clear manner so that the audience understands. Kind of like we were talking about how you're, you're to systematize scripture, understand it, package it in a way that is easy to understand and discuss, right? That's that, that's that gift. Um, they, they'll take God's revelation given to the apostles and prophets, right? He, the, the teacher doesn't receive direct revelation, but what is a direct revelation, he then takes and systematizes in a way for the body to understand, to believe, right? For the benefit of the hearer. Um, again, that has to be carried out according to his own faith, given the faith given to him by God. Uh, there's four listed in verse 8. If someone read, read verse 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, so I'll just try to go through what these sort of mean. So gift of exhortation, it's the God's gift is to get people to apply biblical truth. Prophecy is receiving truth by direct revelation. Teaching is the ability to organize the truth received and to present it. Uh, exhorting or encouraging is the ability to motivate people to use to apply that truth right so you have profit to the teacher who delivers it the, the understanding takes place encouraging would be one another exhorting and encouraging to apply that biblical truth as we discuss as we understand we encourage one another to apply that biblical truth right because each one of us would have a different gift exhortation would be a gift to be able to do that um, again, you practice that according to the faith given to you by God. Giving, right? He that gives, let him do it with liberality. Um, it's the divine ability to give materially um, beyond the normal measure, right? 
we, we all have an obligation to give to the function of the body so that it ha can meet its needs. Um, but this person has an ability to go well beyond that, right? They should do that with generosity. Um, okay, um, then gift of leadership or ruling. He that rules with diligence. Gift of governing, ruling, administering. Um, ruling elders should have this gift and they should exercise it with diligence and earnestness. And then the last gift um, is the gift of mercy. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Um, so that gift is needed when somebody is suffering, right? And, and they're reaching out to comforting or sickness or illness and the needy, right? Um, it's not just sympathizing with them. It's actually having an, uh, an empathy for them and a, div a divine ability to empathize with them. Um, and identify with their hurt and identify with their need, their spiritual need, right? So they generally will deal with sad circumstances and, and if difficulty things. They have a divine ability to, what does God say? When you are with mercy, do it with what? Cheerfulness, Cheerfulness right? So in a sad and in a depressed, in a, in a difficult circumstance, that person has the ability to encourage, exhort, show mercy with empathy, but do it with cheerfulness, right? Cheerfulness cheers up the person, right? That is in a sad state. So it's a, it's a divine ability to empathize deeply with somebody's pain and hurt, but with cheerfulness, right? Because being believers, is there anything that we really should be utterly destroyed or depressed about? All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So whatever circumstance you have, God forbid the loss of a child, say, that all works for the good of your spiritual work in your life, right? And it's hard for me to empathize. I don't have that gift. I can guarantee you that I do not have that gift. So cheerfulness is part of what Paul is saying. Show, they can show empathy and cheerful about it. That's a pretty remarkable thing to do in, in spite of those things. Uh, oh, we have to end. That went very fast. <laughs> I guess when I start hearing doors, I should pay attention. <laughs> Any thoughts quickly? Uh, I just wanted to bring up that back in the, in the first two that said, be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that that word is a metamorpho, or you get metamorphosis. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that same word is used in terms of your salvation that we're transformed, and this is, it continues on in sanctification. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, that's exactly. So don't settle for justification or sal salvation. You're, you have yet to become that butterfly. You're still in the cocoon, right? Like, Get out of it, right? So. And I was also thinking about the um, the unity, diversity, and harmony in the church and the body. And it seems like mankind's pathetic attempt at that is like DEI. You know, <laughs> like we're all trying to be inclusive and do all it, but it doesn't work out in your own power and in any man-made way. No, it does That's not work. That was terrible. Yeah, especially DEI. Good, good Lord. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me close in prayer. Father God, we bow our hearts, Lord, and we're, we come to you presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice because we have received so much. Lord, you give each one of us a gift. 
let us use at least that gift and the gifts and all the other opportunities we have to serve and to encourage and to motivate and to, to grow this body, Lord. We pray for the church service that it would be an application of our serving you and serving one another. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.